This episode is sponsored by the Press Recording Studio in downtown Stockton. And if you're in the Stockton area, join us for National Night Out at Fremont Park on August 2nd from 6 to 8 p.m. We're organizing this event in partnership with our local police department and National Night Out will bring the residents of downtown Stockton together to celebrate with food, music, and arts, encouraging the community to come together to appreciate our multicultural backgrounds in the heart of our city. This is the Third City Podcast, a show about America's third cities and the people who build them. I'm Brandon Piasecki. I'm excited to join you as your host as we seek to understand and problem solve around America's third cities. I grew up in Stockton, and after college and teaching with Teach for America for two years in the Mississippi Delta, I wanted to come back to my roots and be a part of a movement to help my hometown realize its full potential. For the past three years, I've been teaching high school chemistry at a local charter school, Stockton Collegiate, and I'm reminded daily by my students that education is a powerful tool that we can use to bring about systemic change. Third City Coalition is just another medium to learn together about how to improve our city and other third cities across the nation. And I'm excited to be a part of the dialogue and join all of you on this journey. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about the challenges of consensus building in places where voices aren't often heard on a large scale. It's always, public outreach is always challenging. Um, It is still ongoing. It's an ongoing process. Um, But the hardest part is making sure that you're getting a good representation of the whole city. Trying to improve or build on any city's infrastructure or improving life for any community can be challenging. But in many of America's third cities, identifying what any given community needs is its own mountain to climb. My name is Carrie McNichol, and I am the board president for the San Joaquin Bike Coalition. The old bicycle master plan was very outdated. Um, It was based on a future vision of Stockton that didn't become a reality, where The city was going to continue to get bigger and bigger and grow and grow outside of its current footprint. And bicycles in that plan were really a secondary mode of transportation. It was squeezing it in where they thought they could. It was putting bike paths where new developments were going to be. And it didn't really look um, ambitiously at how we could kind of restructure our existing streetscapes to accommodate bicyclists. So the recession hit, the realities changed, and now we're being able to kind of reevaluate what we think our streets should look like. Well, who bike infrastructure helps depends on where it's built, honestly. This is author Ellie Blue. She's written books like Bikeonomics and Cycle Therapy, and she often tours the country and consults on ways communities can become more bikeable. Studies show that the healthiest and most desirable cities in America are just that, bikeable. And a lot of cities, when they think about investing in bicycle infrastructure, they're thinking about getting young creative professionals or middle class people or essentially white people who have choices onto bikes. And that has been really the model that Portland, Oregon has made popular for investing in bike infrastructure. And I think Stockton or any city would help the most people if they looked at who is already bicycling and what their needs are. And you build infrastructure that is beneficial to those needs, to those destinations, to those businesses, to those churches, to those neighborhoods. And then suddenly you have a thriving system that people can use and that everybody else will want. So 
it's a real opportunity to sort of do it better than the rest of the country to serve more people and to like really make a huge difference in people's lives. Honestly, I think the thing that that has surprised me most has been that when you get people from from all these different walks of life at these meetings, how similar what they're looking for really is. Um, that actually surprised me, and it was it was good. It shows that okay, we're we're on the right track here. We kind of know the direction we're going, and and we've we've been guiding the ship in the right direction. But people want to be able to have choice. They want options. They want to have an alternative so that they can choose to leave their car behind and that if they have to, that they can get where they need to go safely. The key word in community-driven urban development is community. If the communities are going to steer the future of third cities, it's important that we understand the intended direction. Celia Neustadt is a Baltimore native and the executive director of the Inner Harbor Project, an organization for social change that identifies teenagers who are leaders among their peers, equips them with research and professional skills, and organizes them to come up with solutions to issues that divide our society on the basis of race, class, and culture. After studying sociology at Pomona College, she realized an untapped resources in creating positivity in public spaces, Baltimore's youth. Contributor Lang Luntow sat down with her and she had this to say. One thing that growing up in Baltimore City really gave me was this sense of ownership, that I could own a space and own what happens in the space. I grew up in Charles Village um, on the 2700 block of St. Paul Street in a big row house. My parents moved there. My dad was at school at Johns Hopkins. And I don't think they ever really thought they would stay, like a lot of people who think they'll move into the suburbs if they have the means when they have children. But um, the city just ended up being amazing. Everything is so accessible. Um, right, We were right on a bus line. And you really can't put a price on uh, that feeling of ownership, I think. I attended Baltimore City College High School, which totally has an identity crisis with its name. Uh, when I got to City, it was about 65% female, about 93% black, and 100% kids who really were invested in their own success and charting their own path in the world. It was a place where I learned about injustice, where I learned about unequal investment of funds in the city. My high school was really a dual education. It was an amazing academic education, but also an incredible social education where I was really embraced by a community that looked different than me. I always knew that if I wanted to do work in Baltimore, I had to go to another city and learn about other issues in our nation and get the language and tools that I was going to need to come back and, and do work in Baltimore. And so that's what going to Pomona was about for me. I went to back to college my senior year and met with all of my amazing activist professors who helped me write a grant 
to work with young people, to teach them how to use research as a tool, to recenter expertise in their understanding of Inner Harbor and to center expertise in their lived experiences and their stories. And um, I got a little $10,000 grant to do just that and I went back to my high school and went into classrooms and asked people what they thought about the Inner Harbor and I would go into classes and say, you know, raise your hand if you had a negative experience with an authority figure like a cop or a business person in the Inner Harbor. And like 80% of the kids in the class would raise their hand. Fast forward four years, um, we did two years of youth-led research on why there's tension in the Inner Harbor between youth and other stakeholder groups, and we were able to confirm that the ne negative experiences that youth have with authority figures, with retailers, uh, lead to crime. We started this work in 2012, 45% of all juvenile arrests in the city were made in the Inner Harbor in downtown. 80% of those arrests were for disorderly misconduct, so stuff like loitering, language, behavioral issues, things that kids should not be arrested for. Our research showed that largely that behavior was a reaction to feeling excluded. And so now we employ 40 young people year-round to lead five programs which they developed from the research that they led to make young people feel more included. So we have five programs up and running, which is crazy because it's taken two years to get all five of these programs up and running. The first one, which has gotten a lot of attention recently, is a youth developed and led training of police officers and other authority figures. So it's three sessions long, one hour each. We teach it to all of the cadets at the academy. And then also we're going systematically through every police unit. We've trained every school police officer in the city. Um, the, we've trained some bus operators. Really, um, anyone who is at the forefront of that, that micro-interaction which makes young people feel excluded. It's an incredibly moving experience that I don't get to be a part of because it's truly youth-led and having any adult in the room really changes the dynamic um, because then the other adults in the room defer to the authority of that adult. So I'm not even really allowed to be there. 81% of the people who've done that training say that it will change the way they interact with youth in the future. Also, you know, we live in a city with one of the biggest research institutions in this country, Johns Hopkins. And I think having the people power of that institution has been extremely helpful. I used to work for Johns Hopkins and I, it's, it's one reason I started the Inner Harbor Project because they really wanted research to be led and owned by a community that wanted to make a change instead of being led by an institution and then um, the community doesn't necessarily see what happens to it. When Hopkins offered a million dollars to us to, do, to, to use the youth leaders to do their research. Um, which was the antithesis of the mission that the organization is based off of. And I got to say no. I 
I want people to know outside of Baltimore is that I do think Baltimore is the center of social change right now in this country. Maybe not the, but a center <laughs> because of, if you're in a city which hasn't had a major upheaval, what, how do you get people to focus on social change? We have, we have this huge opportunity right now. And so I would love, not just in Baltimore, other cities. I, I, and I'd love to know if, this, if you feel like this exists somewhere else because I'd like to go there. But I'd really love for there to be a public, systemic analysis of innovation that's working and a way of scaling it locally. So like what we've done with the police department is really good. And apparent, we've been told it's the only youth-led training in the country. And it has good results. Like, I want to do, we want to, why don't we train every cop? Like, why isn't what we've, what we've done in the Inner Harbor just replicated throughout the city? Um, and I don't think internally within the city there's a mechanism for scaling good innovations. Donna Brown was a dedicated public servant for years before her retirement. Worked in the uh, library field up until 91, when I uh, became deputy city manager in Stockton. The library's across the park from City Hall, and I sat over there for those years I was working at the main library, and I kept saying to myself, someone over there should do something about. And after 12 years, I had a very long list of things that I thought City Hall should deal with. One day, the deputy city manager turned in her resignation at lunch and walked out. So I talked to the city manager, and I said, I'd just like to talk to you about this job. And I didn't hear anything for a few weeks, and then I got a call, and he said, are you still interested in the job? And I said, yes, I'd like to talk to you about it. So he said, well, when you, can you start? They were having problems in South Stockton. It was right after the Rodney King incident in L.A., and things were heating up. It was June. The uh, fair was about to start. So they wanted someone to manage what became the Safe Stockton program, crime-fighting community relations program back in those days. And when she finally left the city planner's office, she was fed up. She wanted new candidates to choose from in election years, and she wasn't alone. Roger Story, who was the other deputy, had heard about a program in Seattle. When Seattle started growing in the 60s, it had a city council that had been there for years. They wanted to do things the same way they'd always done. Some of the younger citizens town realized that Things were changing, and you couldn't do things the way they had always been done. They contacted various groups around town, different uh, social groups, different income levels, different ethnic groups, and said, we want you to identify the leaders in your group that you think would make good elected officials. So Roger came back and said, we should try doing that here. So we did, and we started about 2007. She started the Good Government Group, and together they worked to identify community members that would make good leaders and began educating them on issues that were important for their communities. When we were first selecting candidates, one of the criteria was that they had not been in elected office before, had not been a candidate. We didn't want any self-anointed candidates, if you could uh, call it that. but. 
people that were just citizens that might have not otherwise ever thought about running. But we knew there would be leaders because they were leaders in their own communities. The candidates that we supported have been very good for Stockton. Many of them are still in office today. They've had some tough decisions to make. They've stayed with it, and I think the city is better off because of that. One thing that's always concerned me about Stockton is I don't care how good an idea you have, it's never perfect. But instead of saying, well, okay, I like your idea, but can we work together to make it perfect? People shoot it down right off the bat. And you cannot succeed in a community that does that. For all of its faults, Stockton is really an easy city to get involved in, much more than your larger cities. People are always coming up with ideas and saying, you know, Stockton is just around the corner from success. Uh, it's right on the verge of something but we never quite get beyond that. I think if we could get the segments of the city together and quit poking holes in ideas, that it would be possible to really achieve our dreams here. And I hope someday we can do that. Third City Podcast is a production of the Third City Coalition. Executive producer and editor is Sarah Washington. Our sound engineers are Diego Ayala and Matt Young of the Press Recording Studio in downtown Stockton. Special thanks to Lang Lung Tao, Celia Neustadt, Donna Brown, Ellie Blue, Carrie McNichol, and Sarah Neely. If you're interested in learning more about the Third City Coalition, go to thirdcitycoalition.com. I'm Brandon Piasecki. Thanks for listening. Thank you.